We are in a series called Read Your Bible, which is the primary goal of the series is for you to read your Bible, um, for you to have a discipline and a habit that you're actually getting into the Word of God on your own, that you're not just, you know, coming to church once a month and getting it read to you and, you know, you're, you know, I, I mean, I love the daily bread, but it's only one passage usually or one scripture, you know, and uh, with a thought out devotion for you. So I encourage you find whatever reading plans, study guides, ways in which we, you can kind of dive in and begin to have this discipline for yourself. Uh, what I do know is that no matter whether you've had a discipline or not, whether you've uh, done it really well or not in the front in the past, uh, whether you you know you got a, a, a life application study Bible or you've got a Bible reading through the year, those are all good things. We also know that there comes little moments and times in which you just kind of get out of habit. And what we want to always come back to is that no it, no matter where you are, you can always soap through Scripture. That's kind of what we always want to come back to. Uh, when we challenge you, you can always soap through Scripture. What does that mean? It means that no matter where you are, if you have access to the Word of God, you can take some Scripture and read it. You can look for an, a, 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 something that God wants to point out to you, an observation in, in the passage or in the book or whatever you're doing. You can think through and even pray through how to apply that Maybe there's a clear application in the Scripture. Maybe it's something you've got to work through. But ultimately, to pray, to ask the Holy Spirit to take the Scripture that you've read, the observation that the Holy Spirit has brought to mind, the application for your life, and then pray that God can do a work in us. You can always soap through Scripture. And that's kind of how we approach even the series when we teach through the series. Pastor Chris took the first week and did it kind of live and on the spot. He kind of walked through uh, soaping through Scripture. It was a great visual example. Go back and listen to that. Uh, but he talked a little bit about the hope that we have because we're in First and Second Peter. We're looking at those first two letters. So in First Peter, the first couple chapters, he just walked through the hope of what it means to be set apart the holiness of God, to be set apart because of the work that Christ has done in and through our lives. And then last week, I walked us through the second couple of, uh, second portion of the second couple of chapters, three and four, and talked a little bit about the, just this theology of suffering. You know, you have to remember that the context and the audience of who Peter is writing this letter to is the early church that is in the height of the Roman emperor Nero and his persecution of Christians at that time. So not only does he talk about the theology of blessing in terms of our faith and the reward that's, you know, that's in store for those who follow God, but he brings out this theology of suffering, of understanding that suffering is not something that should highlight that you're outside of God's will, but should highlight that if you are doing what God's called you to do, that suffering may accompany that. Suffering, hardships, trials, and there's a purpose for them, and there's a way in God which works through them. And so I'm closing out the first letter today, and then we're going to pick up the second letter next week. But I'm closing out the first letter today, which is the fifth chapter of 1 Peter. So if you want to turn in your Bible, you can turn there. We're just going to start looking and kind of soaping through the first several verses. And then I'm going to show you today how I kind of take a little bit of a... Sometimes when I read and I'm soaping through Scripture, I will oftentimes come to an observation that requires more study. It requires more you know, looking in the Word of God and seeing what He, what he wants me to see. And so we're going to walk through that together uh, today. First Peter 5, uh, verse 1, it says, And now a word to you who are the elders, or who are elders, in the churches. 
This is the people who are leading the churches, leading the movement. This isn't as organized as you think it would be. These aren't necessarily pastors and official offices of elders. These are uh, the towns and the villages and the communities of faith in which uh, people who are coming together in homes to look at the Word of God, he would consider elders to be those who are just a little bit ahead of everybody else in terms of how long they've, they've been a part of walking with God and accepting Jesus. So he says, you are the ones who are called to lead you're the elders in the church, and I too am an elder and a witness to the suffering of Christ. He wants to help them understand, I too am called to help lead the church. That's what I'm doing. Even though he doesn't use his leverage, his position as an apostle, he just says, yes, I witness the sufferings of Christ, but I too am an elder in this uh, with you. And he says, and I too will share in the glory when he's revealed to the whole world. And as a fellow elder, I appeal to you. I make this charge. I, 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 uh, you can hear it with the attitude of begging you. I, I, I really need to call this out in you, those who are helping lead in faith. Care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. And, you, and I can't help, and then we're going to look at this a lot today, I can't help always kind of, God helps me when I read this and I, and I get to think about Peter's life. And as I think about Peter being a leader in the church now, I think about some of the ways in which he, again, encourages God's people. And last week I brought it up, like it's so funny that, that he would talk about the suffering and don't deny Christ, even though he was one who actually denied Christ. Jesus said, you were going to deny me. And then how he's the one having to call the church up to stand firm and strong in the faith. But I love this because Peter gets to actually use some very similar language that Jesus used with him. So I don't know if you remember this part, but after his resurrection and after he had appeared and after uh, in the upper room and after he'd already, uh, Peter had already denied and, you know, still felt horrible about it and the, the disciples scattered, Jesus shows up on the beach and he's eating breakfast with Peter, ministering to him because Peter still feels like he's blown it. And he says, do you love me, Peter? I don't know if you remember this story. He says it three times because I don't know if. Peter wasn't hard of hearing. He just really wanted to get it in there, right? Do you love me, Peter? Yes, Jesus, I love you. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, 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 I love you. And after the third time, he says, I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to care for the flock. And again, I just love this. I love that Peter gets to now say the, some of the same words that Jesus said to him as he looks to the elders of the church and those who lead in the faith. He says, I want you to care we're going to do this together. We're going to care for this flock that God has entrusted us. Watch over it willingly, which I love that word. Not grudgingly, right? Not, not like a chore, not like a task, but, but willingly do this. Not for what you will get out of it, which, you know, he's not writing this, you know, in this culture, but this culture is just the same as it was then. We approach everything from a standpoint of humanity in a what's in it for me mentality, right? That WIFM, W-I-I-F-M. What's in it for me? What's my return on investment? What am I going to get out of this? And so because that's such a rampant thing in every culture, it bleeds into the church and it bleeds into the community of faith where people show up and they do, but they're really just trying to figure out what they're going to get out of it. And that can be that way even for people who should be leading the church. So here's Peter saying, look, don't don't walk into service and don't walk into the church just seeing what you're going to get out of it today. Come with an eagerness, he says, to serve. Come with a willingness 
to do what you've been called to do, not for what you get out of it, but because you are eager to serve God. I just wonder what changes. I can tell you from personal experience, but what changes in the heart of your life when you walk through the doors of the church, or you walk into a small group, or you walk into a Bible study, and you don't go with this constant thirst and constant you-focused attitude of what I need to get out of this today, versus showing up with an attitude of who can I serve today? What am I bringing today to worship? What, what can I do to help others? He keeps going. And this is specifically to the idea of the model leadership. He says, don't lord it over them. Right? Don't lord it over the people assigned to your care. So he's talking specifically like you're in the church of this, you know, P- Peter, P- Paul often would times write the name of the church in the, in the letter to the church of Ephesus, to the church of Colossus. But Peter's writing this to the church, right? Especially in Jerusalem and those that are still there. And he's like, don't lord it over them. They're assigned to your care because they're here. But you don't need to take that position of, I'm the boss, I'm the leader. But he says what? Lead them by your own good example. It echoes what Paul would often say, follow me as I follow Christ. You know? Yes, yes, I I have a charge to lead and care for the flock, but I want you to follow, you know, it's not because I'm perfect, it's not because I know all the answers, but follow me as I follow Christ. Peter says, I want you to, to lead in such a way that doesn't lord leadership or authority over people. He wants you to do it in such a way that's a good example by your life. And then he says, when the great shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of never-ending glory and honor. He, Peter, again, in, in this whole letter, continues to show us you know, the promises that are in store, the way he'll lift us up, the way he will reward those who stand firm and honor him. He says, in the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders. You who are younger, you, you also have a part to play. You who haven't walked with Christ as, as long, you who maybe are new to this, the, you know, this, this thing called the way at the time, the church, you need to accept the authority. And I, I don't, again, I don't think it was any different in this culture as it is in ours. The younger you are, the more trouble you have with authority. Anybody else experience this in life? I I know this now that I'm getting older. I'm getting older, and I just want you to know that as I get older, the less things I have to lead, the more thankful I am. Right? Oh, please, Lord, let someone else lead this. Just tell me what to do. Right? Am I right? Like that's You get to this point. But when you're younger, and the younger you are, there's just something about that in your nature that I want to do it on my own. I know, I know what I'm, I know what my right, I know what's true. I know how to do it. Don't tell me what to do. I mean, we see it from you know kids all the way up through their adolescence and teenage and young adult years that they struggle to follow authority. And so here's Peter making the charge. He he appeals to to the elders of the church, but he also appeals to those that are new and younger in the church. It says, listen, you need to. You need to take the position uh, to respect those who are over you, to respect those who have gone before you. And then he does, as he does oftentimes in this letter, he kind of he gets specific, and then he gives an all call, right? He gives it to everybody. Everybody, all of you. The way to do this is to dress yourself in humility as you relate to one another. Humility is going to be the key. 
as you relate with one another. For God, and he goes and pulls from their scripture. Again, I told you this last week, um, you know, just like we would, as we talk about the truth of God's word, we pull from God's word to, to emphasize or to, to relate and teach the truth of God's word. It wasn't any different with Peter and Paul and the disciples. They would go to their scripture, their old te- we call it the Old Testament, but their Jewish scripture, and they would say, this is how God wants you to live. And they would go to the Old Testament, this is from Proverbs 3, and say, understand, why is humility such a big deal? Because God opposes the proud. Like he did, not like passively, like he opposes them. He stands against them. But he gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so this is the theme that comes out as, I, as I'm observing and reading this last part of the letter is this call to humility. And he says very specifically that a call to lead and be led in a manner that honors God requires humility. You know, for you to lead others in the faith, in the community of faith, for you to be led by someone else requires humility, requires you to clothe yourself in a state that says, you know, it's not all about me. It's not all about, it's not all about my, the center of, you know, I'm the center of the universe, so to speak. It's about him, and it's about us together in terms of leading others and to be led well. So when I start looking at humility, because this is what I will often do when I start seeing themes that God wants me to just sit on in Scripture as I'm soaping through Scripture, I'll say, well, what is humility? And I, you know, I go to the dictionary. It's the freedom from pride or arrogance. It's the quality or state of being humble. I actually like this definition because, you know, it is a freedom from the sin of pride. It is a freedom from arrogance. But I love the fact that it's, it's not about humble gestures. It's not about the posturing to be humble because a lot of times that's what people do see as humility. Well, you know, you get that false humility on social media. You get that false humility when you're with certain people like, oh, and I understand and it's not about me. You know, you, you've seen those people, right? That's, that's, that is that sort of posturing, if you will, of humility, but it says, really, humility is a state of being, humble. It's just who you are. It's not something that you're doing. It's the way in which you do things. You do it in a way that comes from humility, comes from being humble. And again, it doesn't have to be false or or some way of putting yourself down. As a matter of fact, I love this quote this is from C.S. Lewis. True, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Right? It's not thinking less of yourself. It's not this idea of being a doormat and letting people walk over you and do these kind of things. Like, it's not that. It is understanding that you are not the center of the universe. That it's not all about you. And listen, oh, how quickly we make things all about us. Right? Like, how quickly we make things about us. We can take all of the good things in life and make it about us. You know, we can take serving on a mission trip and make it about us. We can take about we can take praying for other people and make it about us. We can take coming to church and make it about us. And he says humility comes from this place of again not trying to down downtrodden you or you know push you down, but this idea of like, no, no, no. It's just thinking of yourself less. It's putting others' needs ahead of your own. 
It's putting others in a place of honor, not yourself, because it's not all about you. It's not all about me. And this is what really dawns on me when I continue to read in 1 Peter. As Peter calls the church to clothe themselves in humility, humility, he says this, I want you to humble yourselves. Okay, think about these words. Humble yourself and yourselves under the mighty power of God. And at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. See, a lot of what he's written about is how we honor God, but a lot of times, we, because it's all about us, we have to find a way to honor ourselves as well. We have to find a way to build up ourselves as well. And he's like, no, I want you to think about the fact that if you clothe yourself in humility and you humble yourself because of who he is, then you really do put it in his hands to lift you up and to honor you. He continues by literally saying, give all of your worries and cares to God. He cares about you. It's, it echoes that the end of chapter 4 that we read last week and closed on last week when he said, you know, trust your life. Put your life in the hands of the one who made you. He will not fail you, right? Give these worries and cares to God. Everything that you feel like you gotta, you got to control, you got to put your hand on, you got to navigate, you got to figure out, you have to kind of manage, put it in his hands. He won't fail you. And he will lift you up if you can find the way to humble yourself. And so this is, these are the two words that just kind of came back to me over and over and over again when I was studying this passage. As I closed out this letter, I was like, humble yourself, humble yourself, humble yourself. What does that mean? What does that look like? What does it mean to humble yourself? Well, I, I, I began with the idea that it is different than, than being humbled, right? There is a contrast. Does anybody know what I mean when I say to be humbled, right? Maybe you have your own stories, but, but you know, to be put in place, to be not humiliated, hear the words, hear the difference, not humiliated, but to be humbled. And I'm telling you guys, all I could think about was Peter, Peter's the one saying, hey, humble yourselves. And yet, when you go back to the four Gospels, there is no record of, of any disciple who has to be humbled more than Peter. Everybody with me? I mean, again, you may not have read this on your own, but I'm going to walk you through a few things. Because Peter had to be humbled a lot, right? He had to be humbled a lot by Jesus himself, okay? He was a professional fisherman, I mean, that was his job. It was his, it was his like livelihood. It was, his, it, was, it was all he did. He grew up doing it. He's fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And he comes in from a horrible day of fishing. Hor like, nothing's out there. Nothing's working. Every trick in the fisherman's book is not working. And Jesus shows up when he's exhausted and it's the hot heat of the day and says, hey, let's go out again. And Peter's like, yeah, I'm a professional. Why not? Let's do it. And then he goes out there and Jesus is like, cast on this side, now cast on this side. And he catches so much. And he's humbled by this moment of the power of Jesus and the work of God in his life. He's the, he's the one who, I don't know if you remember this, Jesus, Peter was the guy who said, hey Jesus, how many times should I forgive my neighbor? Like three times? How about seven times? You know, seven times was his way of being like, that's even more than what we normally do. 
That's more than double what we normally do. And Jesus has to go, yeah, good, good call, Peter. It's actually seven times 70. Like you're not even, you're, not, you're thinking about forgiveness, but it's not really even forgiveness you're thinking about. You're just thinking about how, to, how it makes you look, how it affects you. Remember the time he had to get out of the boat? Hey, Jesus, if that's you, call me out on the boat. I want to walk on the water too. You don't need to be the only one walking on the water. I want to be with you. So he calls him out of the boat. And then he starts to sink. And he, he realizes that he took his eyes off Jesus, which is just another way of him being humbled, that it ain't about you getting out of the boat and you walking on water. It's about him. Do you, do you, know, that G, do you guys know that Peter actually told Jesus he was wrong? Do you guys remember this at all? That he rebuked Jesus? Jesus is trying to explain how he's going to die, how he's going to be buried for three days. Like, again, this is early on. Jesus is trying to help his disciples not be, get a picture of what's coming because they all thought he was setting up his kingdom right there. And, and, and he says, I'm going to die and I'm going to be buried and it's going to look like this and it's going to be persecution. And, and then Peter says to Jesus, no, that's not going to happen. And then Jesus called him Satan. I don't know if you've ever been called Satan by Jesus. It's a humbling experience, right? I mean, again, this is Peter. Peter is the one now telling the church, telling the people of God, hey, don't wait to be humbled. Don't wait for it to be humbled. You will be. Humble yourself. Again, I think about the time in which he he denied Christ, and Jesus said, you know, you're going to hear the rooster crow, and you're going to have told three times, you're going to deny that you even knew me. And, and, and the Gospels record for us that it was in that moment when the rooster crowed that I don't even know the chaos of the day and what was going on, but it says that he locked eyes with his Savior. And I can't imagine how humbling that must have been. And yet this is the one, he's the guy calling us to humility. Well, I, again, I started looking through Scripture, and I wanted to know, what does it look like to humble ourselves? What does it mean to humble ourselves and that God will lift us up, that, that it doesn't require us to constantly, you know, kind of fight for ourselves and fight to be right and fight for all these things? And so I, I, it took me on a quick rabbit trail. I'm going to walk you through a couple things this morning before we jump back in. But I want to read this together. This is the passage that I just loved. I, I mean, God was so gracious to give this to me in my study because I was looking for this idea of, okay, God you know, is going to lift you up if you humble yourself. And, and anytime you cross, you know, just a real quick, real quick uh, side note here. Scripture is what is used to interpret Scripture. So if you ever want to know what Scripture means, the best thing to do is go look and see what, scripture, what else Scripture says about that. Does that make sense? So and, and you go, well, why? That doesn't make sense. Why would Scripture interpret Scripture? Well, if Scripture is the absolute truth of the Word of God, then there is no measurement, no measuring stick, no rule that you can use the Word of God against to test whether it's the Word of God other than the Word of God. Is everybody with me? That's why you use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And so anytime it takes me back to Jesus, anytime I'm doing a Croft reference or I got a rabbit trail of trying to figure something out, and any time it could take me back to the Gospels or it could take me back to Jesus, not that I don't value the Old Testament or other letters in the New Testament, I value all of it, but, but any time it takes me back to what Jesus said, I go, I go there first. I go there first. And so here's Matthew 23. This is where God took me. And what a beautiful way in which, again, he just kind of 
walk me through that same thing that Peter was talking about. We're going to read it together, Matthew 23, just a few verses. In verse 1, it says, Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, what they say, but don't follow their example, for they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside, and, they're, and they wear robes with extra long tassels. And they love to sit at the head table of banquets and in the seats of honor in the synagogue. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplace and to be called rabbi. Don't let anyone call you rabbi. He's talking to his disciples. For you have only one teacher. And all of you are equal as brothers and sisters. And don't address anyone here on earth as father, for only God in heaven is your father. And don't let anyone call you teacher, for you have only one teacher, the Messiah. And I love this where he says, the greatest among you must be a servant. But those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. I love the fact that God just took me to that passage where Jesus, again, is giving an example of what leadership looks like, of what leading others in the faith looks like. And he says, look, yeah, the, the, the Pharisees have been given the charge to teach you what the law of Moses says, but they are not living this out. So do not follow their example, because they're not living out what, what is being taught and what is being said in the Word of God. They're not living that out. And then at the end, he, he gives us this idea that, that we need to be the service. Even the greatest among you is going to be the servant. Why? Because those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who are working in this life to exalt themselves, to, to control everything, to try to build up their name, their fame, control their universe, God doesn't have a choice but to humble you because you are not the master of the universe. He is. You're not even in control of your own universe. He is. He's like, they're going to have to be humbled but even Jesus says, those who choose to humble themselves, right? There's a, there's a practice here. And there's something that you can do to actually put yourself in this position. To humble yourselves, God will lift you up. You will be exalted. So I, very quickly, I want to walk through this. This is a statement I wrote down. Faithfully living out sacrificial humility will cost us our insatiable need to be right. It will cost us our insatiable need to be right, to live out this idea of beginning to humble ourselves. And here's, here's the part that, I'm, that I, I hate to say it, but it's just true. Even if you were raised in church, even if you were raised in godly environments, what has bled into the church through elders and pastors and deacons and grandparents and parents and uncles and Sunday school teachers and other people that you follow on blogs and podcasts and everything else, there's a Christian subculture that is, that is posturing themselves as humble before God, and yet there's an insatiable need, not just to be right, but to be the right test. Everybody with me? 
You want to be the right test. Oh, we all believe in Jesus. We all believe in the Savior. But everything else you believe is dumb. Everything else you believe is foolish. And we divide and we divide and we divide. And that is not, hear me, that is not humility. That is not humility. It's going to cost you, not just the need to be right, but for you to feel like you are the right test one, even in your faith. Clothing yourself in humility. I just wrote down three or four things. It's to respect one another. Peter has already told us in chapter 3 that when we share our faith and we share the absolute hope that we claim to have as followers of Christ, we got to do it in a respectful way. Here's how Paul said it uh, to the church in Galatia. He says, share each other's burdens. In this way, you obey the law of Christ. And if you think you're too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. You are not that important. That's a great verse to memorize, isn't it? Like print that out and put it on your car, you know, on the way to work, you know, because it, it gets, it builds up in you, doesn't it? It's like, I got to meet, I got to see Bob today, man. Bob's going, ah, I can't stand, I got to see Bob today. You're not thinking about how to serve him and love others. You're thinking about you and about your world, about how it affects you. And, and here's Paul. Yeah, you're, you're called to serve in this way, guys. Like, don't, don't put your, your needs ahead of everybody else. You're just not that important. We have to extend grace to others, to one another. It goes on. Here's what he says to, to the church in Ephesus. He says, get rid of the bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander. Now, I just want you to think about those words. Isn't that funny how those are the things that come when we make our world about us? All the anger, all the frustration, all the rage, all the harsh words, they come not because of who you are, but because of how you affect me, as well as all my other evil behavior. Here's Paul's just like, get rid of these things. And then he says this, instead, be kind to each other tenderhearted, forgiving one another just as God through Christ has forgiven you. This call to be kind, this call to serve, this call to be, to be, to be patient with one another does come from this full heart of just, you got to extend grace. You're going to have to forgive others. And I want you to remember, every time Scripture calls us to forgive, it is not because someone asked for forgiveness. It is not because someone deserves forgiveness. It is not because someone, you know, it's, it's, it's all about them. He tells us to forgive because we've been forgiven. Every time. So we have to forgive others. That's just another part of humbling ourselves. Uh, this is from, uh, what is this one from? Colossians. Make allowance for each other's faults, right? And forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord your God again has forgiven another, so you must uh, forgive others. Well, I don't want to. Tough. Well, they, they don't deserve it. Tough. Well, they haven't asked for forgiveness yet. They don't even think they're wrong. Tough. You, 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 you forgive the offense, and you guess what make allowances means? You pre-decide not to be offended. You pre-decide not to, not to you, you pre-decide to forgive. I used an example in the first service, and my wife wasn't here, and I said, my wife and I hadn't even seen each other today, so there's no possible way I, I could make her upset yet, right? But you know what making allowances, you know, you know what 29 years of marriage has taught us? 
We make allowances for each other's faults, right? Am I going to do something today that's obsessor? More than likely, right? But we make allowances for each other's faults because we've predecided. Does that make sense? You can do that with other people. Predecide. Make the decision to extend forgiveness, extend grace, respect one another. These are the ways in which we clothe ourselves in humility. That we can intentionally take steps to humble ourselves so that we do not have to be humbled. Let's go back to 1 Peter. We're going to jump back in and kind of finish the, the letter real quick. It's interesting. The turn he takes here is for us to be on guard, to stay alert. Watch out for the great enemy the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, this is often used out of context, uh, not fully, but it's often used when discussing things like spiritual warfare and things like that, um, because there there is a charge here that Peter says, hey, watch out. You know, we do have an enemy. The enemy is on attack mode, okay? And, but the, the, the visual he gives us is that he is a lion, kind of looking, kind of prowling around trying to figure out who he can pick off. And I don't know if you've ever been on a safari or you've seen the shows or whatever the case is, but lions do not, like, rush a herd head on, okay? That's dumb, okay? Even, like, you know, water buffalo, will t- you know, if there's more than a few of them, they will tear a lion up. Like the lion, that's they don't do that. What do they do? They might send a couple in to kind of, you know, split the pack, but they wait for you to be divided, They're looking for who isolates themselves, who's alone, who's weak, who's foolishly isolating themselves so that he can pick them off. And here's Peter, again, read it in the context of the letter. Peter's charging the church together right now. The church as one together. He says, I want you to stay alert. Don't let him pick you off because you're foolishly isolating yourselves, because you're putting yourselves out there as if, as if you are all who you need in this life. He goes on to say it this way. He says, standing firm against him, be strong in your faith. Remember the family of believers, your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering you are. Again, this is the height of persecution with Nero. And he says, look, you're a part of a larger family of God all over the world, going through. You're never alone. You're never just you. And he goes on to say, but in his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by the means of Jesus Christ. So after you have suffered for a little while, and this is part of that theology of suffering, even if you do have to suffer, even if it's the whole time on earth, in in light of eternity, it's a little while. He's going to restore. He's going to support. He's going to strengthen you. And again, just as the other words exalt, lift up, he will place you on a firm foundation. No matter what. He will not fail you. All power to him forever. Amen. So I did add a fourth thing to this list because as I thought about that culture and I thought about the charge, especially in context, another way in which we humble ourselves is we can pursue an uncommon unity. 
Another way to humble ourselves is to pursue an uncommon unity, meaning that in our current culture, this, this, we are so pressed towards the individualistic nature of what we think and what we feel and what we believe that we are allowed to divide ourselves over all of those things, from politics to preferences. That, that we're, we're sort of pushed to, it's okay, you don't need them. And yeah, that is not what Scripture calls us to. Scripture calls us to pursue this uncommon to our world unity that it doesn't matter if you and I believe about everything the same way. It doesn't matter if our preferences or politics or social ideology completely align. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior above all things, then you and I are brothers and sisters in Christ. And it is the only way to stand firm against the enemy, is to pursue this uncommon unity. You'll notice when you go on global outreach trips, when you go to Honduras or Peru or the DR or Haiti or Kenya or any of the other places we go, you know what? We take our American baggage with us, you know, our politics and our preferences and our things, and you learn really quickly, they don't give a rip. They don't care. They don't care. They don't care whether you're right or left or this or that. They, they don't care. They don't even really understand you when it comes to all your junk. They have their own junk, right? They have their own junk. What becomes extraordinarily clear is what unites us. What becomes extraordinarily clear is whether, I mean, you're in the middle of a worship service and you can't, I'm telling you, he's not wrong. I slaughter the Spanish language. I slaughter all languages. I barely got a hold of English, Okay. But you're in, yeah, that's right. We're in the worship service. You're in a worship service, and like I'm in Kenya, I'm the only Mazunga in the place, you know. And you know, you could be in Peru or wherever, and you're you're like you're totally isolated. And I'm telling you, it doesn't matter because in that moment, the Holy Spirit of God does something to unite you into the body of faith to worship Him. And it's beautiful. It's amazing. I'll close with this verse. This is the verse. Uh, he closes his letter with a few comments about, you know, Mark and Silas and a few others that are a part of his journey and try to help get this letter to them. But here's what I love. He says, I've written this and sent a short letter to you with the help of Silas, who I commend to you as a faithful brother. He says, my purpose in writing you this is to encourage you and assure you that what you are, say the word out loud, what you are what? experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. So stand firm in this grace. This is, to the, again, context. He is writing this to people who are being led to their death sometimes in persecution. But he wants the church to know that even, even all of this, even the current season that we're in, Peter would say, even in the current season that we're in, I want to encourage you and assure you that even what you are experiencing in this season is a part of God's grace for your life. So stand firm in that grace. Stand firm in the grace. Even though you may not understand everything you're experiencing, you can stand firm that God has this for you now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this letter that Peter continues to 
just echo the words of Scripture of, of our call to not only honor you and honor others properly in a, in, a way that's, in a way that's right, but God, just through that suffering or through that blessing or through that future reward that, God, we have a call to lead one another and to be led well. We have a call to unite together. We have a call to humble ourselves so that relationally we can do those things, so we can kind of make progress. But God, it's going to cost us our insatiable need to be right or to be the rightest. And it's only by your Holy Spirit that any of us can take those steps to humble ourselves. But God, may we understand what we're experiencing now the high mountaintops that we all love, that we all love to stay there, but even the valleys that you call us through, that this is still part of the grace that you've given to us, even in the time that may be the hardest. And we need to stand firm in the grace you've given us. And so, God, that's our prayer today as we close out this time. Amen.